And our last speaker of the morning, or of the, of the day, is uh, Dr. Brian Berman. He's a voluntary professor of Durham at the University of Miami. And um, he serves as a member of the board of directors of the AAD. He actually came to our, um, uh, last fall, he came and uh, spoke on behalf of the AAD uh, and, and how proud they are of us with our diplomate program. It was great ha having a member of the AAD there. Um, he's presented, over 200, uh, presented at over 250 local, regional, state, and national and international dermatologic societies and meetings, and he's the author of more than 250 peer-reviewed scientific and clinical articles, chapters, and books. So he's been around, and uh, he's my adoptive grandfather, so uh, he hates when I say that to, to everyone, but uh, he's a great guy, and please welcome Dr. Uh, Brian Berman. Well, evidently, my adopted uh, granddaughter told me that I better get off in a hurry so we can go out and drink. <laughs> uh, one, I want to thank you very much for inviting me. And uh, what I've been asked to do is to uh, discuss uh, dermatologic therapy malpractice verdicts. Now that sounds a little heavy, but actually I think we're going to learn from these cases and it's going to be actually not so bad, not so terrible. Um, those are some of my disclosures, but really my disclosure is that I'm not an attorney and that I didn't even sleep in a Holiday Inn Express last night, so uh, feel free to ask me questions, but I really won't be able to give you any insight at a level of being an attorney. So I'm going to be talking about dermatologic therapy misadventures that ultimately resulted in a verdict. How do we go about learning what happened? Well, we used a LexisNexis legal database. I don't know if you're familiar with this database. It has all the verdicts here in the United States, not just medical, but all verdicts. And we looked at the database for a 10-year period of time throughout the 50 states. And we specifically looked at medical liability verdicts dealing with dermatologists. <laughs> Because I was focusing on therapeutic dermatologic misadventures, uh, we threw out all the verdicts that dealt with misdiagnosis or delayed diagnosis, which in fact is probably the most common reason for having a verdict and going to, well, having to go to court. But we threw all those out because we weren't looking at diagnostic problems, we were looking at therapeutic misadventures. The other thing you should know, some caveats about this study, was that any mediation that was out of court that never resulted in going to court was not searchable. So we had no idea what was going on for those cases. Also, any cases that had to do with the Veterans Administration, any federal hospitals, that is also not searchable. And if there was any ongoing litigation, well, that was ongoing, so there was no verdict, so it wasn't in that database. So with those caveats, one could see that one could argue that the cases that we actually were able to look at may have been maybe the, not the worst cases against dermatologists because the really difficult cases, they may have been worked out prior to going to court. So we may be seeing some of the lighter cases but there's no data for that, but it may be just conceptually a possibility. 
Okay, so that's what we did. So let's start off with the original piece of bad legal advice. Go ahead, Eve, it's the first offense. What's the worst thing that can happen? Well, I think a good segue from the last discussion about isotretinoin, how about Accutane? Can you get sued for giving Accutane? Well, if the only thing you remember from this whole presentation is that you can get sued for anything. It could be frivolous. It could be embarrassing. It could be unrelated to anything you did. People are allowed to sue you for any reason. Now, it may not mean that they're going to be successful, but you can be sued for any reason. Okay. So let's take a look at this case. Now, this was actually prior to the iPledge system. This was a dermatologist who prescribed Accutane to a 14-year-old girl for treatment of acne. Uh, the girl, with her stepmother, while the stepmother was present, guaranteed the dermatologist that the child was not sexually active and obviously, therefore, not pregnant. The dermatologist did not administer a pregnancy test. This is a mistake. In fact, the young girl, 14 years old, was pregnant at the time. And then the outcome of that pregnancy was an infant who had mild cerebral palsy and mild mental retardation. So who sued the doctor? It wasn't the little baby. It wasn't the 14-year-old child's mother. And it wasn't the stepmother. So who sued? It turned out the adoptive parents of the little baby then sued the dermatologist, alleging that the dermatologist was negligent in failing to obtain a pregnancy test prior to prescribing the Accutane. Okay? I'm going to ask you to be the jury. Not liable? Quarter of a million, half a million dollars, $1.4 million, $2.7 million. What do you think? How nasty are you guys? <laughs> $2.7 million. Now, what's the take-home message here? Sometimes you're just liable, and that's why you have medical malpractice. And it may not be a great idea to try to say, well, maybe if I take it to court, I'll get off. Because that $2.7 million is probably way higher than what it could have been mediated prior to going to court. So here the physician was saying, well, look, maybe I'll get off, and then cost him a lot more money. So it says here, looks like you have a solid case against the surgeon. If you leave a sponge, even if it's SpongeBob, during surgery, <laughs> that's a mistake. And trying to go to court and say, well, maybe they'll let me off, even though I left the sponge in, may not be a good tact. And that was maybe a bad advice on the part of the snake, saying, what's the worst thing that can happen? Well, the worst thing is that they can charge you a lot more. And that is the reason why you have medical malpractice, if you made an error. Okay. Can you get sued for not giving Accutane? We just saw one where you got sued for giving Accutane. Again, you can get sued for anything. This is an example of a dermatologist who prescribed tetracycline to a 17-year-old male for acne. Have any of you ever done that? Prescribed tetracycline? Okay. The parents of the 17-year-old alleged that 
They tried to call the doctor multiple times. They finally got a message through, and then the doctor over the phone increased the dose of the tetracycline for their son. Have any of you ever changed a dose of a medication over the phone? Everyone does that. Well, that's what this doctor did. The patient then saw another dermatologist who stopped the tetracycline, started the patient on Accutane, but the patient ultimately developed some acneiform scarring, both on the chest, back, and the shoulders. The defendant, uh, that would be the dermatologist, right? Contended he did not cause or contributed to the scarring, and that there was only one documented attempt for a phone call, and he responded right away. All right, jury, guilty, not, oh, you don't want this one to be guilty, do you? <laughs> the jury is out for two and a half hours. Is that good? Is that too short a time? Is that a long time? It's an eternity if you're the defendant. It was a defense verdict. What does that mean? That's good for us, all right? That means not guilty. However, on the record, the prosecuting lawyers were overheard and it got into the record what they said. They said, well, this is Norfolk County, Massachusetts. It's right near Harvard University. And he said, it's almost impossible to win a malpractice case in Norfolk County, Massachusetts. So what's the take home message here? If you're unfortunate and get sued, change the venue to Norfolk County, Massachusetts. <laughs> okay, now what if you set up a, um, like a puppet a corporation? Uh, to cut down malpractice suits, my colleague Dr. Hand will do all the talking. Is that gonna help you? Well, this is a case of a 30% TCA peel on the hands that had a bad outcome. A cosmetologist established a corporation with the doctor. And the cosmetologist treated the hands of a long-term customer. Note the term customer, not patient, because it's a cosmetologist. With 30% TCA, which ultimately resulted with second and third degree burns, permanent scarring, and hypopigmentation. It just turned out that this cosmetologist previously was under the employ of the dermatologist. Just so happened. And it just so happened that there was a case where one of the colleagues of the dermatologist had treated with 30% TCA, had a bad outcome, and the dermatologist trained the cosmetologist at that point, you should never use 30% TCA on the back of the hands and the cosmetologist actually was there during the original case. Goes to the jury. First question, is the cosmetologist guilty? Oh, you're easy to, yeah, well, it's the cosmetologist. Half a million dollars. Is the dermatologist guilty of anything since the cosmetologist had a corporation and the dermatologist was not involved in the care? Well, it turned out that the judge dismissed all the claims against the doctor, but probably because it was such a strong case that prior, he had trained this person not to do this, and now this person not even under his employ and did it independently. So there, a little peripheral information was helpful in the case to protect the physician. Oh, yeah, now you're gonna love this one. <laughs> this is a real 
doctor, not the warmest fuzzy guy, not a great bedside manner. Um, what he did, he was from New Hampshire doctor, and he told one of his patients that she was so fat that the only way she would ever be able to get married is if she married an Afro-American. This is on the record, all right? <laughs> the patient sues the doctor. The doctor then was able to find a report in the literature that among different ethnic backgrounds, the African-Americans were more open to have a primary relationship with someone who was heavier and got off, all right? Because he had something in the literature to support what he said. Now again, this guy was not the warmest and fuzzy guy because he also had a patient who had a severe lymphoma and he said, I'm not gonna tell you what to do, but if it was me, I would go home and shoot myself with a shotgun. So this is this guy. Now, but what if he had gotten informed consent? Because that's the whole thing I'm going to be talking about is how good is informed consent to protect you? What if he had informed consent? It's okay. He signed the won't take offense waiver and we're videotaping and your lawyer is observing via a webcam. Can consent help you avoid suits? So here are a couple of cases of dealing with informed consent. They'd be with lasers. You guys use lasers? A pediatric dermatologist utilized the candela laser. Now, they misspelled the word candela, but this is the way it was written in the uh, uh, write-up in the LexisNexis database. Uh, the laser was to treat some of the pigmentary alterations uh, in Sturge Weber from multiple port wine stains in a patient who had seizures and glaucoma. Now, the first treatment resulted in hyperpigmentation of the face lasting for two and a half years and permanently on the left forearm there was also a little hyperpigmentation. The plaintiff, that's the patient, contended that there was lack of informed consent because the informed consent didn't mention that the arm was also going to be treated. It mentioned the face was going to be treated but not the arm. And also that there should have been some uh, test sites prior to treating him. Okay? The Plaintiff alleged extreme emotional distress, mental suffering, rejection, humiliation, loss of self-esteem, ridiculed by peers and parents of his peers because he was grotesque, because of the pigmentation on the left forearm. Okay? Asked for $164,000 for past and future suffering. Now, what did the dermatologist argue? She argued that she followed her custom and practice. Now that's the crucial words, her custom and practice, which was to provide full informed consent. Even if it was a verbal informed consent, that was her custom and practice. And it turned out that in her verbal informed consent, she mentioned, oh, by the way, I'm gonna be treating your arm because that's why you came here. Um, although the hospital informed consent did not mention the arm. That was the informed consent that was signed. Okay. The dermatologist also suggested that there was no need for any test sites because she was very comfortable with that laser and knew how to use the laser. And in fact, the facial hyperpigmentation did resolve with bleaching agents and that the arm hyperpigmentation was extraordinarily subtle. Okay. You're the jury. 
dermatologist guilty? Remember, the informed consent did not mention the arm, but the dermatologist said, I gave verbal informed consent, and that's my custom and practice. Is that a strong enough argument to get off? You guys aren't so sure. Defense verdict, that was good. The dermatologist was able to prove that that was her practice, custom and practice, to give verbal informed consent. So verbal con informed consent is informed consent. It's just harder to prove. It's nicer to have it in written, written. Okay. All right, Strie. Have any of you ever prescribed a topical steroid? Yeah, maybe once or twice. And have you ever given a steroid for use for three to four weeks? All right. Do you ever tell the patient specifically that they may get massive stria all across their abdomen but using a topical steroid for three to four weeks? Do you specifically mention that to your patients? Think about it. <laughs> Dermatologists treated 22 women for a rash. I have no idea what the rash was. They don't describe what the rash was. With a topical steroid, Sorcon, which was a medium to high potency steroid. After four weeks, the rash was gone. That's the good news. The bad news is permanent stria developed across her abdomen. The plaintiff, that's the patient, alleged improper informed consent because not every possible side effect was discussed. That's possible this could occur, but it's not a very common side effect, right? In such a short period of time. And therefore, a lower potency should have been used. What did the dermatologist say? Well, this is clearly, this is a highly unusual case. Less than one-tenth of maybe of a percent of, the, uh, of patients would have such a response to a topical steroid for such a short period of time. And the informed consent that was given was all the probable side effects of this drug. Not every, you know, you may get hit by a, a meteor. You know, I mean, that's a possibility, but that's not a likelihood. Good enough to get off or not? You're not so sure, huh? The good news, a defense verdict, okay? 55-year-old female plaintiff experienced burns and scarring after an elective procedure to remove excess hair on the chin and neck. The plaintiff alleged improper settings of the machine, okay? because of this, and that caused the scarring. Let me tell you now, you can never prove what the settings were on a machine unless you have a timed photograph of what the settings were and you put it into your note. You could write what you think you wrote on the machine, you know, that carries some weight. But it's very hard to prove what the settings were if there's no evidence, hard evidence what they were. The defendants said, no, the settings were right. Well, that's, you know, he said, she said, you know, there's no way of proving who was right, okay? But they also argued that burns are a recognized risk when you're using the hair removal laser. The plaintiff signed a consent form that said scarring was a possibility. So they have an, an signed informed consent that scarring is a possibility. Their argument is the concept that injury can occur in the absence of actual malpractice. And that's the argument. That good enough? You have a signed informed consent. 
No one's arguing that the patient had a bad outcome. Dermatologists are saying bad outcomes can happen, but that's not malpractice. The result was defense verdict. Well, now you're getting a little cocky. <laughs> okay. Have you ever given oral prednisone to any patients? Maybe. A lot. Do you tell every patient that they may develop avascular necrosis of the femoral head? Do you get them to sign that? No. I can say most of us don't. Not a bad idea to do it, but most of us don't. Here's a dermatologist who treated a 42-year-old man for a chronic skin condition. Again, I don't know if it was atopic dermatitis or for psoriasis, uh, with prednisone intermittently for five years. Now, the dermatologist stopped giving the prednisone after the patient developed avascular necrosis of the femoral head. Unfortunately, this patient had a very rocky course from the necrosis with nerve palsy and osteoporosis. It's interesting that the patient didn't recognize that there was negligence going on here until two years after the dermatologist stopped giving the prednisone. I think he probably went to some cocktail party and met a lawyer, but I don't know if that's really happened or not. <laughs> and the lawyer said, oh, I got a case for you. All right. The defendant, that's the dermatologist, disputed the cause of avascular necrosis. What causes avascular necrosis? Well, it's associated with prednisone and steroids, but it's also associated with exercise, with injury, diabetes. Could the prosecutor prove that on any Tuesday that she ran for the bus? That didn't induce the avascular necrosis, and it had nothing to do with the steroids that the patient was on. It's impossible to really prove what the cause was of the avascular necrosis, and that was the argument. Was that a strong enough argument? $50,000 against the dermatologist for this one. Now you say, well, that's not so bad. You know, the insurance company will cover that. And that's true. However, as you know, there are some states where if you get three, and some states only two malpractice cases against you, then you can't get malpractice insurance anymore. So in effect, you can't practice medicine in that state. So $50,000, not a lot of money. The insurance company, I'm sure, was more than happy to pay the $50,000, but it goes on your record that you have one case against you. Now, everyone worries about wrinkles, even babies worry about wrinkles. Zyplast, which is not on the market any longer, but it was a collagen-based injectable, so there's some things to learn. 40-year-old plaintiff experienced lancinating pain immediately after being injected with Zyplast in the glabella area. That's right between the eyes right here, okay? It was in a dermatologist's office. The dermatologist wasn't present during the injection. And then the patient says, hey, I got this pain. And what does the nurse say? Go home and take some Tylenol. All right? What had happened is the nurse had injected the supertrochlear artery, and uh, that collapsed, necrosed, infarcted and then caused the ultimate pain and scarring in that area. Now again, this is a patient who came to the dermatologist for a cosmetic issue and then walks out ultimately with more scarring in that area. That's not a good combination, okay? The plaintiff maintained, 
that's the patient, that clearly the nurse wasn't well-trained, wasn't appropriate for the nurse to inject, the nurse wasn't able to make a diagnosis of, of um, the necrosis, and nor how to treat it, giving Tylenol. For those who want to know where the sucrotrochlear artery is, uh, those are two eyeballs over there, in the middle is the nose, and right over there is the artery. So if you inject right in the glabella area, a branch of that artery comes right up. And if you inject into the artery with fillers, you can necrose off that and cause infarction. That's what happened. Now, what does the dermatologist do? And I think this is an example where the dermatologist try to deflect the responsibility in such a way that it antagonized probably the uh, jury. So the defendants, the dermatologists, contended that they weren't aware of any violations because whose fault was it? It's not our fault. It was the state nursing authority. They didn't post enough flyers to tell us that nurses weren't allowed to inject. So it's not my fault. It's not my nurse's fault. It's the nursing authority from the state's fault. And I think, to me, that's uh, a weak argument and also would antagonize me if I was on the jury. But what do you think? Was that a good argument? As I think the words were coming out of the dermatologist's mouth, the lawyer probably realized this is not going over well with the jury. And they settled before the final verdict came out, and they just went up to the judge and said, we'll settle for $175,000. Uh, it's missing a zero there. Okay, if you make an error, do you apologize to the patient? How many of you say, yeah, you apologize? Almost everybody. Good, okay. What I suggest is you can acknowledge and show empathy, but you probably shouldn't acknowledge your error, okay? But you should acknowledge that it exists, don't minimize it and feel bad for the patient. Say, we're gonna to try to make the best we can out of the bad situation. You know, be available, don't try to avoid it, don't change anything in your record or whatever. But you may not have to say, boy, did I screw up. That's not probably a good argument, okay. But here's a patient who is getting ultraviolet light for psoriasis and he got a 12 minute course of ultraviolet light and developed a blistering um, sunburn. The patient then took pictures of the sunburn and the blisters. Two days later, he goes to a dock in the box for some other reason, and in the record, there is no note on the physical exam of the presence of any sequelae of the sunburn or the presence of any residual blistering, okay? A week later, the patient comes back to the dermatologist and the, patient, the dermatologist apologizes for burning him. All right? Patient then promptly sues the dermatologist and for good luck, the dermatologist's associates too because they have deeper pockets, there are more dermatologists. So sued everybody. The defendant, there's the dermatologist, I think also may have put his foot in his mouth again saying there are only minor symptoms which was true, and then goes ahead and says, and if there wasn't that photograph, there would be no case at all. 
No one was arguing that the photograph was falsified. No one was arguing that it didn't ever occur. But you don't say in front of the jury, uh, well, if the guy didn't take that picture, then I'd never even be here. You know, that's not a smart thing. Okay. $30,000 against the dermatologist, and they threw in $5,000 against his associates for good luck. They had nothing to do with it. 35-year-old female decided to go ahead and have a CO2 laser treatment for facial pockmarks and scarring. Now, this was based on reading an inf information sheet about the procedure. In the information sheet, it included that one of the potential side effects was non-permanent hyperpigmentation. Okay? Right before having the procedure, the doctor gave the patient a written informed consent, which he promptly signed but never read. In the written informed consent, it says the hypopigmenta hypopigmentation can occur and it could be permanent. The patient developed one square inch of hypopigmentation. The plaintiff, that's the patient, argued that it was not unreasonable for her to expect that the information sheet that was the basis of her making the decision whether to go ahead with the procedure was going to be identical to the informed consent that she was signing right before the procedure. That was the argument of the patient. The defendant said, what do you want me to do? I have a signed, written, informed consent from the patient saying that this could happen, and it happened. So here's another example of consent written. Is this good enough to get off just because you had that? You think so. $90,000 settlement. <laughs> so the take-home message here is if you do give out any information sheets you know, that your society gives you or you get from any other, the American Academy of Dermatology, read them to make sure it's consistent to, with what you do as well. Um, and make sure it's consistent with your informed consent. Okay, I think there are maybe just two more cases here. Any of you ever use cantharone in your practice? Uh, th three quarters of you use that. Okay. Hopefully you don't have to take, well, they're not going to give you this question on the boards, you know, but it inhibits two proteins, protein phosphatase 1, 2, A, and it induces blisters. Is this a surprise? No, because where is it isolated from? The blister beetle, okay? Why are you using it? You're trying to induce a blister in order to raise up the molluscum or whatever, okay. Two children are treated for molluscum contagiosum, originally with frozen CO2, and then they switched to using cantharidine, and blisters developed. The plaintiff, actually it was the mother of the plaintiff, alleged failure to have really informed consent. No reason why cantharidine was being used was ever discussed with them, and it triggered a seizure in one of the children who already had a history of meningitis and a stroke caused psychological injury, scarring, parental wage loss, and she wanted $60,000. The doctor said, wait a minute, I didn't breach any standard of care. 
The use of cantharidine as a standard of care treatment for molluscum contagiosum was the right diagnosis. I used it the right way. And blistering was expected because that's how it works. Is that a strong enough argument to get off? Especially when the mother drags in a four-year-old with seizures, you know, <laughs> going on in front of the jury. There was a verdict for the defendant. The dermatologist was able to explain that this was standard of care. That's a very strong argument, standard of care. Last one. Now, this is a very famous case, and it was the use of Botox off-label. It turns out that in March of 2010, Botox is now FDA approved for chronic migraines, but at the time of this case, it wasn't. And this was a very high profile case. Some of you may remember it. it was out in Los Angeles, and it was the wife of a famous director, movie director. So it got a lot of press. The patient suffered from migraines, was treated one time by the dermatologist with Botox for the migraines, not for wrinkles, okay? The plaintiff alleged the migraines were made worse by the Botox, was bedridden for four months, and claimed medical malpractice, negligence, breach of fiduciary duty, product liability, strict liability, fraud, intentional misconduct, unjust enrichment, and improper promotion, and the Botox was not approved by the FDA for the treatment of migraines. Now, you get that letter on a Friday afternoon. That really makes your weekend, doesn't it? <laughs> What does the defense do? They defined off-label use. The FDA not only condones off-label use, it actually encourages off-label use where there's a rational basis for using it and in the right dosing patterns. Because the FDA can't approve every potential indication, and they can only approve an indication if someone brings it to them to be approved. They can't just de novo say, oh yeah, and by the way, we wanted to approve for another indication. There has to be studies that were performed and brought to the FDA to be evaluated in order to approve it. So they don't mind having people use off-label use. Have any of you ever used a drug off-label? That's 100% of you, all right. So this, I thought, was a very important case because it really went to the heart of how dermatologists practice, which is using drugs off FDA labeling. Now, the plaintiff had four expert witnesses, and the defense had 14 expert witnesses. The take-home message from this line is there will always be a dermatologist or a physician's assistant dermatologist who will be willing to be an expert witness against you. It's fact of life. Get over it. <laughs> There'll always be someone to say you did something wrong, okay? But here, it was 14 for the defense, four for the prosecutors. What was the result? I think this is really crucial because we're talking about to be able to use off FDA labeling. It was a split jury, but the majority voted for the defendant and therefore was vindicated and also our use of off-label was vindicated. So in summary, again, the majority of medical liability verdicts against dermatologists dealt with misdiagnosis, delay of diagnosis, primarily dealing with skin cancer. That's the most common reason. But it was remarkable 
in this 10-year period of time, the paucity of cases regarding systemic therapies. Things like methotrexate and imuran and the retinoids orally, oral antifungals, the use of thalidomide, interferon, at that point the new biologics. There wasn't a single verdict in the database. Now again, the most egregious cases may have never gone through the whole court system to get to a verdict. But there wasn't a single one. That was remarkable. There were no verdicts dealing with calcineurin inhibitors, topical calcineurin inhibitors. That was a big issue because of the black box of lymphoma. There wasn't a single verdict. At that point, no verdicts against dermatologists for any fillers. Okay. No verdicts about off-label use. That was good. And then take-home message, hypopigmentation and scars. Patients don't like hypopigmentation. They're not crazy about hyperpigmentation, but hypo really gets them upset. Informed consent doesn't protect you from being sued. Written is better than oral, but oral is informed consent. And there'll always be a dermatologist as a plaintiff against you. That's just the way things are. So I want to thank you for your attention. And after seeing all these cases, I'm sure all of you want to have the happy hour that's going to be going on in a few minutes. Thank you very much.